it's it's well to at least one party so you can have yes. something like slavery where you can you can uh one party benefits but the other party gets screwed um right and that's unfortunately been the model that we've been reduced to in a lot of societies um the romans did it did this the that way and all the way up to you know the soviet gulags they built their entire country and all of the infrastructure and stuff through slave labor right yes. like they they would put them to the gulag or whatever and that that's how how they would build it out um and that's what it reduces to when you don't have voluntary trade so right. really the alternative to capitalism the alternative to voluntary trade is some form of slavery which yes. is not a very good prospect absolutely um yeah we could say maybe the voluntary trade is a positive sum game and if we introduce an involuntary aspect to that, it becomes much more zero sum, much more master and slave mm. dynamic. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, embedded in the central bank system. It is, there's involuntary exchange right to the core, right? Every time we print money, they're stealing from the productive economy. Mm. And I think, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently too, is I think this impacts our, not only our self-identity, but our group identity as well, that we identify so much with politics. We're so concerned mm -hmm. about our political leanings one way or another. And it's only because politics determines the distribution of property to a large extent. <laughs> you know, if it couldn't be stolen, then all of a sudden we just wouldn't have an incentive to care about one another's political leanings as much. So it's almost like politics is this mass psychosis induced by, you know, fiat or at least contributed to by fiat currency. Yeah, um, fiat money definitely raises the stakes of politics because there's this money printer that you get to control. Right. Um, uh, like if, if you get into power. So of course elections matter because mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's all about spending this common public property, especially in a democracy where everything becomes sort of hyper, um, hyper political because, uh, you know, if, if you, come out on the losing side, you kind of are screwed uh, by the majority that get what they want, but at your expense, ultimately. And the, the, and this is like sort of getting much deeper into the book about the flaws of democracy. Mm -hmm. But this is this is definitely one of the things that uh, that should concern us is that when you combine democracy with fiat money, it makes it like the the stakes get way higher and of course a lot more people are going to be um you know political because it is just there's just so much at stake yeah so we really are changing our behaviors or patterns of action the characters we exhibit by the systems mm -hmm. that we inhabit or the incentives that we mm -hmm. face i guess it reminds me of that quote i love this paraphrase says every public election is an advanced auction on stolen goods. Like, you know, they're just, yeah. And the, the author gets into that in very good detail uh, soon. So just before we get into that, he talks a bit about goods themselves, where they come from, that essentially we have to, you know, each of us owns ourselves. This is kind of an undeniable fact. Only you can move your arm. Only I can move my arm. We control our time, our mind, et cetera. That is the most personal form of property. Mm. It's given to us just by virtue of being alive. And then every other form of property is when we take that 
personal property and go out into the world and combine it with something that we then own. I mean, that's, that's the idea, at least, that we have exclusive rights to that property. We can trade it with other self-owned people. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. the basis of, of capitalism and wealth creation. So we're, you know, he calls us, we're expropriating from nature, effectively. Right? Mm-hmm. There's things mm-hmm. in the world, we're going out and making it our own, and then we're trading it with each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. And it seems like perhaps this political or Keynesian worldview kind of extends that expropriation from nature into human nature a little bit. It's where people (laughs) start to decide they want to cross that line and say, whatever you worked to produce, I now have rights to that. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we could say politics is treating people as, as a means in a way Mm -hmm. they start Mm -hmm. to actually look at them as capital goods and um, trying to control them perhaps. Mm. So this, I mean, one of the ways I'm looking at this is civilization in itself. And in addition to all the things we've said today, one of the most important aspects of it is that we build systems and technologies that resist this expropriation Mm -hmm. of others so that we can secure ourselves against this predation of property. Mm. Yeah. And, and this is, this really comes from this idea of uh, socialism, which I think only really came into prominence post enlightenment with sort of like this denial of God mm-hmm. it is this idea that, okay, if it doesn't belong to pre pre enlightenment, it was, it's all gods. And, you know, we're, we're all, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, borrowing his stuff, including our own bodies. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and, uh, and th- this was, uh, the, motive for virtue or to leaving things better than we found them and stuff, Mm -hmm. because we're not expropriating from nature per se, we're expropriating from God, or we're, we're not even expropriating. We're, we're we're not really ever possessing it as much as we are um, taking care of it until, you know, we're done. And, you know, this, uh, there, there are many uh, biblical parables about this, but the one that stands out to me is the parable of the talents. You know, he's entrusted you with a bunch of stuff, right? And this mm-hmm. could be, um, you know, um, you know, your skills and your abilities, which is how people tend to uh, think of that. Which is where why the word talent came to mean like skills that you might have that you mm-hmm. happen to be good at. But it's also other things that you are appropriated, including you know land that you might have or uh, you know things that you would inherit. It's it's everything that was get, that that used to be how people thought of as property. Mm-hmm. But once you remove God from the equation, now it's like okay, who does it belong to? Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is this is where the title of the book is just so poignant because democracy, the God that failed, mm-hmm. the place where democracy goes wrong is that when it becomes a God and to a degree, that's what it's become where it it, uh, like property doesn't belong to a person anymore. It it belongs to the collective, to the democracy, to the Mm -hmm. government. Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, like all forms of socialism. And I think uh, Hoppe basically calls democracy sort of like a representative socialism or something, something to that effect. It's the idea that everyone owns it, but then, as he argues, if everyone owns it, no one owns it. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and and this, this this is the particularly poignant part of it is that when you make it a god, then then 
you know, you don't really have a good argument for why they can't take it away from you, right? Like if you make something and there is no God and there there is no sort of like private property or whatever, and it belongs to the collective, yeah, they, they have a claim on it if that's mm-hmm. the philosophy that you subscribe to. Um, but if you believe in natural rights and if you believe in God, if you believe in private property, then mm-hmm. none of that makes sense. That, 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 that expropriation of your labor, um, that, uh, you know, that claim that government has on you is based on this idea that democracy is our God. And it is a God that has failed because all of its promises about ev- making everything better uh, by having sort of collective ownership of something. It's, it, and really what he's saying is democracy is just sort of like a mild form of socialism or communism or something like that, where there is this idea of a public good and that private goods get expropriated into public goods very quickly um, as, uh, as things progress, as we've been seeing. So, um, so in that sense, I, I think it is important that we have some way to protect our individual rights, Mm -hmm. our individual property, and having some sort of, uh, you know, uh, ways to prevent seizure. And uh, Bitcoin, I think, is like hands down better than anything that we've ever seen ever, because it is, in a sense, metaphysical. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't have a physical location. And therefore, like, you can seize whatever, but if I keep it in my brain, there's no way you can get it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to spite you, I might not let you have it, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm willing to die on this hill, you know, that, that might be the case. Mm-hmm. And, that, uh, and that level of individuality, that level of freedom, of, uh, of being able to resist is like, uh, is a virtue, I think, uh, mm-hmm. in, in civilizing something because it prevents this expropriation, the the stick in the flywheel or whatever, to a small degree. Obviously, like you can't prevent a lot of the bigger stuff that they enforce with guns, with threats on your life. Um, but, you know, stuff like this, where you do have significant value stored up here, well, you can't take it away. All right. that That's, that's amazing for, uh, you know, like low time preference behavior, because Ultimately, you can rely on that, whereas, you know, uh, you know, it, they they can tax almost everything else. Um, they they can take it away and, you know, pass laws that say, you know, um, like like the first law that almost every tyrannical uh, government does is they they take your property, right? It's mm-hmm. okay. Right. It's now legal for us to take our uh, take your property, and if government is the God, right? It doesn't matter if it's necessarily uh, democracy, monarchy, or whatever. And we can talk about the subtleties yeah. uh, be- between those differences in a bit. But if they have that right, or if if there is no God and that they, they act as a God, then you really have no recourse. <laughs> you can't say, right. well, well, you can't do that. Why not? Why not? We, we have the power and we, mm-hmm. we have the guns and we, we have the ability um so why not uh and you, if you if you appeal to some moral thing they can say we make the morals and that's it and you're done uh but if we have something where they don't have the ability to take it away 
Well, at least we can stop them at that level. And there we go. They can pass laws, but you still can't take it away because you don't have the ability to. Um, and that that's really our defense. Yeah, well said. As you know, man, Bitcoin is it's such a pragmatic defense of this core morality to Western civilization. Um, and this goes all the way back to, you know, I think it was Aristotle that said, when everyone owns everything, nobody takes care of anything. You know, so mm -hmm. this, I, it's not like, <laughs> I guess we figured out like empirically true in the 20th century that mm -hmm. socialism does not work. It's pretty clear it does not work. Mm -hmm. The results could not have been more catastrophic, but it's something we've really known forever, right? This is not, mm -hmm. not new knowledge or wisdom. And that this idea of removing God from the state sort of leads to this. And you don't, mm -hmm. even in kind of a purely secular sense, if we just said God is, a higher principle to which the state is accountable, right? Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't even need the deity or the, the, any of that. Um, when you remove that and the state has no accountability, it just runs amok effectively. Mm. Um, and I think in, you know, in Western civilization, at least, I guess that higher principle would be preservation of life, liberty, and property, roughly. Mm -hmm. We could really mm -hmm. condense that based on what we've learned here today, that it's really just property, right? If you... You are or natural life. law, right? Like, yes. ultimately, like the, the the idea that you have rights and that you can't violate them. That's it. Yes. <laughs> like, that's what what the Declaration of Independence was all about. Was you are violating our natural rights, therefore you are not a legitimate government. You can't say that if you don't have a higher principle to appeal to, exactly. uh, like natural law. And and that's unfortunately the direction we're headed. Is that. Uh, apparently, we don't have a natural right to assemble. We don't have a natural right to even like if you're if you live in Australia, go outside whenever you want. Like that's right. that's not a natural right that you have. But, and that is that is a very scary thing because when yes. you when you take those things away, um, you know you 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 get uh, civilization collapse fairly quickly. Yes, yes, it is a very slippery slope when you know, towards totalitarianism, when government that is really only intended to uphold those things, right? The preservation mm -hmm. of, of property, which we could say includes life, liberty, property, or natural law, mm -hmm. natural rights. When they turn on that, mm -hmm. um, it, it devolves very quickly. And so, mm -hmm. and this is, you know, property rights themselves, the, there's been many arguments made, and I agree with this, that they actually emerge from the Judeo-Christian ethos that, mm -hmm. you know, Jesus taught us the sovereignty of the individual matters more than the sovereignty of the state or any group, right? Mm -hmm. Individual identity mm -hmm. matters more than group identity. That's kind of the core of property rights. It's like the individual is the element of civilization, not the group necessarily, which mm. can maybe be a bit tricky for people to comprehend, but it's like when you optimize for the individual, you actually have a better group outcome versus if you have the group, um, group identity superseding individual identity, you get socialism type outcomes. And so there's this, it's, you know, property is the crux of the whole thing, right? The government's mm -hmm. there to preserve property. It feeds on property. Um, and this is where the technological domain comes in. It's like, we need to have a sounder civilization. You need unassailable property or inviolable property is kind of the ideal. Mm -hmm. Gold was the best thing we had. You know, you could conserve a mm -hmm. lot of economic value in a small space. It could be secured and verified and it lasted a long time. All these 
these things, but Bitcoin is something fundamentally new. You know, this, you know, it's a damn near unassailable property if you do it right. Um, and it's a purely voluntary system to our point earlier that it's, there's no, there's no involuntary element to it. Right. So there's no coercion, right. It's kind of stripping coercion out of, out of socioeconomic systems as well. And yeah, it might be the most important thing ever in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, the, what, what that brings to mind is just how much, uh, you know, the state, when it tries to change human nature, how much it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And this is where sort of the a priori, um, you know, uh, Austrian economic axioms like, you know, people prefer um, things now versus later and, and things to that effect really come into play. Because when you do prioritize the state, you are essentially making the claim that you can change each individual's preferences, right? Mm -hmm. um, which you can do to some degree, but like axioms like that, you're, you're not going to be able to change at least not easily, not without like complete brainwashing and turning essentially people into animals. Mm. And this is why optimizing for the individual works much better than optimizing for the collective. Because if you optimize for the collective, you're essentially, um, and this is what Keynesians do, uh, if you try to do that, you're essentially trying to change human behavior, which is yeah. which is the real flaw of socialism and, and communism is that they're they're trying to flip these axioms on its head and saying no you're going to prefer this instead of that mm -hmm. uh you know the uh when people don't operate that way and in order to make them behave in the way that they think they should behave the only real um you know thing that works is lots and lots of fear and that that mm -hmm. means uh you know exertion of violence of threats and things of that nature uh which, which cause people to behave in the way that people want uh that that the uh that the you know rulers want uh but ultimately is counterproductive because yes. you're you're essentially um you know, taking away the creative and productive capacities of a lot of people and reducing them down to um, you know, some form of slavery and, right. you know, it, it, it's, it's beneficial maybe for the rulers for a short time, but it's literally de-civilizing because all of those people can't think of the future and it's only the future of the rulers that get satisfied and not like all of civilization and collectively it just keeps collapsing. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And it seems like one we have learned repeatedly yet we are here once again doing you know going through it again in kind of a new manifestation and it's almost like you know to your point they're trying to change human nature mm. or or control it i guess and it's mm -hmm. you know in the long run to, to your point in the short run sure you can get people to do different things by pointing a gun at them or threatening them whatever mm -hmm. But in the long run, it's as fruitless as trying to change the laws of physics. I mean, you just create this mm -hmm. unstable uh, system that eventually ruptures, right? There's some revolution or some uh, breakdown. And this isn't a hypothesis. I mean, again, it's rooted in a priori knowledge. Like you're destroying mm -hmm. the incentive for people to be productive, the ability mm -hmm. for people to be productive. The government or the rulership feeds on that productivity. It needs income and wealth being generated by the productive economy. Otherwise, it doesn't mm -hmm. exist, right? It's, it's like a parasite mm -hmm. that kills the host, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, yeah, it's very, it's heavy thoughts <laughs> to think maybe <laughs> for, for most, but it's a very, very serious matter. Um, and now the author, I want to get into where he introduces government, government growth, and the process of decivilization um, spanning from monarchy to democracy. And I'll read an excerpt to introduce this. Mm. He says, quote, every government, and that means every agency that engages in continual institutionalized property rights violations, aka expropriations, is by its nature a territorial monopolist. There can be no free entry into the business of expropriations. Otherwise, soon nothing would be left that could be expropriated, and any form of institutionalized expropriation would thus become impossible. Under the assumption of self-interest, every government will use this monopoly of expropriation to its own advantage in order to maximize its wealth and income. Hence, every government should be expected to have an inherent tendency toward growth. And in maximizing its own wealth and income by means of expropriation, every government represents a constant threat to the process of civilization, of falling time preferences and increasingly wider and longer provision, and an expanding source of de-civilizing forces. I, I mean, this is heavy. He is positing that government Contrary to the belief, I think, of most people that it is the preserver of civilization is quite, in fact, the opposite. You know, it is a, a threat to civilization um, as an agency that's engaging in this continual institutionalized form of, of expropriation of property. Yeah, it, it, he's essentially saying that they are sticks in the flywheel, right? Like, they, yeah. like <laughs> whatever uh, productive capacity that people naturally have through trade specialization, uh, building up of capital goods through capital accumulation and things of that nature, all of this civilization building is essentially you know, slowed down by any form of government, um, mm. as, essentially because they have a monopoly on certain things. And um, there are certain a priori things about human nature that you can, you, you know, that will lead such monopolies to become very inefficient and, uh, you know, you know, uh, subject to moral hazards that they'll, they'll fall into and so on. Um, so what, what you have is, uh, in his argumentation is that uh, government doesn't actually protect anything uh, more that they actually take things. Now, I, I don't think I would necessarily go that far. I think it is possible for government to um, to be, you know, protecting people, especially from foreign invaders like mm -hmm. common defense, I think is 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 a pretty good argument for why you would want a government and obviously the larger the territory the more peaceful territory there is and the more opportunities to trade you get you get and stuff like that and that's basically how the u.s operated up until world war one or so where uh you know they they were you know it was known as an isolationist country for mm -hmm. to most of the world because they didn't really do things outside the u.s they they kept uh you know, they kept out of European affairs and, um, you know, it was a tradition, for example, for presidents to um, never leave the United States during their four years in office. Like they literally would not go to any other country like they mm -hmm. they would stay. 
Um, and it was Woodrow Wilson that broke that as part of his uh, mm. campaign for the League of Nations and and uh, getting the U.S. into World War One and so on. But that 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 was what the U.S. was like, um, and you know, providing for a common defense and doing doing things like that. I think have some value, although a monopoly, I think, as he sees it, is probably bad, and there was probably inefficiency as a result of that. Um, but yeah, I, I, he, I, I think his general point is definitely correct that it's more a tax on productivity or uh, in the abundance of any, everything rather than a facilitator as we tend to view it. Again, mm-hmm. history is written by the winners, and uh, it it is in the in- interests of governments like ours to um, to make uh, make the claim that they are the cause of, of this abundance rather uh, than uh, the abundance being there despite their interference. Yeah, the, and this seems to be related to really the founding principles of America, right? As we tried to create a decentralized implementation of government such that there were checks and balances on this institutionalized predation of property. Mm-hmm. Um, again, to, to try and optimize for the individual. So it was like a, mm-hmm. the principles are sound. Uh, mm-hmm. The implementation was actually good initially, but it became mm-hmm. corrupted over time. The social contract sort mm-hmm. of broke down. Um, and he has this other, I want to read this one other short excerpt. He says, given that all expropriation creates victims and victims cannot be relied upon to cooperate while being victimized mm-hmm. an agency that institutionalizes expropriation must have legitimacy mm. so you know there's that old saying that no government can remain unpopular for long like they have to actually mm-hmm. get public buy-in on mm-hmm. this ideology it has to be justified and this reminded me of the end of human action or Mises is basically saying that when it comes to ideologies, winning the port, the court of public opinion is so critical because it's not like the, the ideology that best serves humanity necessarily wins out on the free market. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of propaganda that gets mixed in with it. Um, and the, the truth does not necessarily prevail on its own. Like there have to be champions on its behalf. There have to be people speaking on you know behalf of libertarian principles or whatever it may be. And I just, you know, the, the degree to which false ideologies have taken hold of the world today is mm. simply stunning. Mm. And I think, you know, we mentioned earlier this idea of reciprocity you know, between your your virtue and your savings, right? So there seems to be this constant relationship between what is and how we behave, right? This is back mm-hmm. and forth. And I guess my great hope of Bitcoin is that we just have something that will help us, like a true disciplinary force mm-hmm. that will help us get to the next level of um, human organization, where we're not constantly going through these cycles of, you know, U.S. was great in the beginning. It honored private property rights. It was an isolationist nation, had low and predictable taxes. We had English common law tradition. We had all mm-hmm. this stable uh, stability, effectively, that let us become incredibly wealthy and powerful. But then with that wealth and power drew all these 
the growth of the parasite, I guess you might say. And now it seems like we're on the backside of that or approaching the backside of that. Hopefully not too soon, but who knows? Um, how do you think about, how do you think about this battle for that we face against false ideologies and trying to, you know, spread the truth about this? Yeah. I, I, as you said earlier, like ultimately every government has to, kind of sell itself, right? Like, and make sure that they are approved by the people. No government can stay in power without the consent of the government for much, uh, for that long. Although, you know, North Korea is proving to be quite the exception, having um, uh, done what they've done. Um, but that said, like, how, how do you sort of legitimatize what you are doing? And Really, the 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 path to that was, uh, you know, shown. I think, um, you know, from the, you know, twenties on with the advent of propaganda, right? Like that. That's been sort of the hack that a um, lot of people or a lot of people in power have discovered in order to essentially manipulate people into thinking something legitimate. Uh, without thinking too much, right? Like they, mm -hmm. they, they've uh, uh, put in a culture of not too much critical thinking around areas uh, that they don't want examined too closely. So the monetary system is definitely one, uh, but also, you know, how, you know, legitimate, like some of these ideologies are like not many people give thought to a priori knowledge. They're, mm -hmm. they're, um, given sort of false statistics with the veneer of empiricism, right? Like, oh, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, for, for a long time during the Soviet Union, they would always like spout these statistics about how the Soviet Union was much better because, you know, they had more scientists per capita and things like that, which are kind of meaningless statistics, mm -hmm. uh, honestly, like as far as scientific breakthroughs, they stole most of them, right? Like they got them from uh, spies in uh, other places. So they were, they were very good at espionage and things of that nature, but actual original things like they, they weren't very good at, but you know, they, they can sort of make it seem legitimate through propaganda. And that, that seems to be um, the, the path of uh, what these governments are doing. The, the thing about propaganda, and I, I read a book a while ago, or at least got through part of it uh, by Jacques Elal, it, it, you know, that, that talks about propaganda is that, you know, the propaganda has to be mostly based on truth, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea isn't to like lie all the time. Um, that, that just looks ridiculous and people cognitively have a very difficult time incorporating lies into their worldview unless it's like really held there by force. Um, it's to tell most of the truth and the truth that you want heard. But, uh, but the key to propaganda is not saying the truth that actually matters. And right. And this seems to be ha, have been the strategy, right? Like this is why we don't find out about the monetary system, or you know, like all, all the different things that go on in foreign policy. Like I, I'm learning now about like uh, stuff that happened in World War II that I always thought I knew. I'm like, what is that? What actually happened? And it's like, okay, Germany was this crazy aggressor that went in uh, against its ally Russia. 
what we don't know, uh, what we do, aren't taught in history books is how aggressive Russia was against Germany, mm. like for about like six months before that, you know, the, um, what they did in Romania, Bulgaria, and many other places, like they, they, they were clashing heads. They're, like at the time, it was very, very clear that they, they were going to go to war. Um, but this is not something that you read in history books. It's Hitler invaded Russia, and then uh, the Russian winter killed them, and then you know, like uh, you know, basically the Allies won, and like, mm-hmm. they don't go into any of the screw ups or the stupidities or um, you know Roosevelt's idiocy, like just utter complete idiocy that he displayed in World War II um, that I, I could get into, but like that that were just really really bad or u.s foreign policy in the middle east like uh, you know i had a show with scott horton about that and just the utter stupidity of what we've done there the past 42 years is just absolutely unconscionable and the only reason that sort of thing doesn't get known is because of propaganda and this right. this 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 is the 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 thing that we're trying so hard to fight against but with centralized platforms this is near impossible because they now have not just like it used to be that tv was just well radio was extremely effective because you can mm-hmm. actually hear the person's voice and uh you can hear like how sincere they sounded and so on and then tv came and you can you can see people's like sincere faces and people got like every politician now is has to be an actor, right? Mm-hmm, because right. if you, if you don't give the right facial signals and, and and things of that nature to the audience, and you you don't sound sincere, then you, like people are going to sniff you out, and you're you're not going to get elected or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gotten to the point where uh, you know, like we have Twitter and YouTube and all these other things, all, all these platforms that are essentially becoming nationalized where there is a central controller and if they don't like a particular thing they can just say hey you know what we're we're gonna shut down your license or you know we're gonna take away this clause from this obscure bill so that you're now liable for whatever your users are saying you know the channels of propaganda are getting worse right Mm -hmm. like at at least as far as uh, our uh, ability to be manipulated goes but this is where sort of like bitcoin is sort of the vanguard of the resistance against that is that it, it's showing us that it can be decentralized and mm-hmm. there there are ways to get out messages on a peer-to-peer basis and uh really it's it's going to require some people to take responsibility and run their own servers and things of that nature because mm-hmm. if you're not serving up your own content and you're you're relying on another service to serve up your content well you're you're essentially going through their censorship filter, whereas if you are going peer to peer, you have no censorship filter. And that that's the key to being sort of immune from propaganda is either not paying attention at all, which very few people are willing to do, mm-hmm. or, you, or you, you have to have sources that are actually genuine and not only what they want you to see, because most of propaganda, again, it's mostly telling the truth, but truth from only one side. And mm-hmm. like the rest of the other stuff, they just get you to ignore. Um, and that's, that's unfortunately been the case. And this, this is our, I think, our resistance against that. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. 
Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. I think we're ready to get into monarchy versus democracy with all of that groundwork we just laid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll read, I guess the general difference here is monarchy is more of a privately owned government versus Mm -hmm. democracy is a publicly owned government. And, and those terms are important. I think we'll, we'll hash them out here. So one brief excerpt from the book, Hoppe says, having to begin small, the original form of government is typically that of personal rule, of private ownership of the governmental apparatus of compulsion, which is called monarchy. So I guess the big difference here, as you said, it's, it's kind of different between private and public. The monarch has property rights effectively in the tax basis or the taxpayers. So having a property right in the, the productive economy, I guess you might say, like the right to tax the economy, you know, it, government, it just, this doesn't make government non-parasitical. It's still a parasite, mm-hmm. but at least in this case, as a monarch, he owned, he has a property interest in this productive economy he's siphoning wealth from. So he has an interest in maintaining it across time. Mm. So I guess we could say the monarch has skin in the game, right? He's not getting <laughs> booted out every four years and kicking mm. the can down the road. Um, therefore, he's incentivized to moderate his taxation of the economy such that it grows, such that his capital Mm -hmm. investment grows over time. Mm -hmm. Um, How, how else would you spell out the the big differences in, in monarchy from democracy or define monarchy, I guess? Yeah, I I would say, uh, well, there, there's a few things that Hoppe, um, you know, talks about in the, in the first chapter. Uh, but the the main one is that um, you know it, it's it's still a government. So in his view, I think it, it qualifies as a parasite. But it's a parasite that cares a little bit about the host and making sure that the host stays alive. Uh, whereas with the democracy, it's okay. Well, you know, whatever happens to the host, whatever is what happens to the host. Yeah. Um, and uh, and for that reason, like because it wants the host to stay alive, it might even like not suck as much blood blood from it or some or hurt it quite as much as would um you know something that's not necessarily a parasite but it's uh, I, I guess 
democracy is more like a cancer, right? Like no, no, uh, uh, no reason to like stop its growth. It's just, mm -hmm. it just, it just continues until uh, the host is dead. Um, so in that way, I think uh, that that's the main difference that he shows is that there is that monarchs have skin in the game. The other thing that uh, that I, I found really interesting is this idea of um, class consciousness. Uh, that mm. in a democracy, it's not at all clear that you are not part of the ruling class because mm. you have you always have that potential to get to that ruling class, and that that is sort of like the American dream that's uh, sold to you, uh, despite the fact that the very few people that get in. Uh, tend to be like very uniform in certain things, and uh, you 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 have to have done certain things in order to have gone there, and and so on. Um, so it, it's not nearly as expansive as it seems, but that illusion, um, as he calls it, is what sort of uh, gives you this idea that it's uh, that you own a piece of. The government uh when mm -hmm. you really don't um mm -hmm. it, it's really owned by nobody but you know with the monarchy um you have a specific person that owns it so that class division or that class consciousness means that as a non-monarch you or somebody that has the potential to be a monarch which is typically very few people uh relatives of the monarch typically but if you know that you're not then it's like okay well um aren't you supposed to take care of it? And it isn't sort of like uh, this weird idea of civic responsibility or whatever, where um, you're, uh, um, uh, you're not really incentivized with money to do something, but mm -hmm. with some weird uh, moral, um, uh, you know, tinge to everything where, you know, it's your civic responsibility to go vote or to recycle or to, you know, do X, Y, or Z, uh, which is, which is, you know, kind of unique in a democracy. Whereas with a king, it's, it's sort of, okay, well, aren't you supposed to take care of it? What am I getting out of it? Right? Like, uh, <laughs> if you want me to do something, you better pay me or, you know, yes. it becomes a market exchange instead of this sort of weird ideological thing that democracies tend to impose largely through propaganda. Yeah, it's a great point. It reminds me, again, it's like democracy and socialism are in many ways one and the same, right? You're replacing mm -hmm. these economic incentives with some obscure devotion to the, the nation state in one way or another, you know, jury mm -hmm. duty or, or recycling or whatever. Um, and it, that just doesn't work as well. It just doesn't mm -hmm. cohere people together as effectively as direct economic incentives which are mm -hmm. um which tend to prevail under a monarchy so and the, to tie this back to the earlier discussion of time preference i want to read another couple of excerpts here so you know he's making the point the monarch has a property right in the tax basis so he has skin in the game he's accountable to his customers i guess is another way we could say this the monarch has accountability with his customer base um, so Hoppe says, quote, the defining characteristic of private government ownership and the reason for a personal ruler's relatively lower degree of time preference as compared to criminals and democratic governments 
is that the expropriated resources and the monopoly privilege of future expropriation are individually owned. So he's got skin Mm. in the game. And he goes on to say that assuming no more than self-interest, the ruler tries to maximize his total wealth, i.e. the present value of his estate and his current income. He would Mm. not want to increase current income at the expense of a more than proportionate drop in the present value of his assets. Hmm. Furthermore, because acts of current income acquisition invariably have repercussions on present asset values, reflecting the value of all future expected asset earnings discounted by the rate of time preference, private ownership in and of itself leads to economic calculation and thus promotes farsightedness. So, he has an incentive to increase the total capitalized value of his kingdom effectively. Mm -hmm. Whereas, so I think about this as like owning a car versus Mm -hmm. renting a car, right? If you own the car, you have an incentive to take care of it and make sure that the capital Mm -hmm. asset on your balance sheet car lasts as long as possible. If you're renting a car, if you've ever rented a car, you know how you tend to treat it. Like you just don't care because <laughs> you're just going to drive it hard and slam the door. And it just doesn't matter because you're giving it back at the end of the week. Mm. That's kind of like the difference between a monarch and a democratic ruler, right? The democratic ruler is effectively renting the car. He doesn't have any, he has no economic interest in the capital value of the economy. Mm. He's just quote unquote giving it back at the end of the week. Although in this case, mm-hmm. It's every four years in the U.S. versus the monarch owns the interest, the capital interest, and he can pass it on to his heirs. Mm-hmm. So it's this, what is that old saying that, um, actually, I'll let you speak to that and I'll look up this quote that I think captures it really well. Yeah, I, I would go even further uh, on it, with the analogy. Um, a monarch is one who owns the car. Um, the, you know, somebody in a democracy, a president in a democracy, um, they don't just rent the car, at least with a rental car, they like check the car afterwards to see Mm. if you did it any damage and stuff like that said, um, you know, this is a guy that's probably stealing the car stereo, replacing the tires with something cheaper and pocketing the difference and, you know, like taking out the car jack in the back trunk and, um, you know, (laughs) stripping it of the leather like that. That's the degree of, uh, you know, sort of like asset stripping, uh, by the time it gets to like, you know, fourth generation, it doesn't really even have tires, you know, Mm -hmm. like it it might have like crack windows everywhere because, you know, like maybe they drove it through a terrible neighborhood or something Mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, like it's it's a piece of junk uh, very quickly because, like there's no incentive for anybody during that whole thing to take care of it other than maybe for the four years that they get to uh, drive it. So maybe mm-hmm. at the beginning they treat it a little better, but then afterwards mm-hmm. it's like, uh, I don't care. It's going to go into my successor. Yeah. yeah. And it's a nice, because there's so many delayed uh, consequences to their actions. It's a great mm-hmm. way to blame your successor, right? When th- when the wheels do come <laughs> off, you've kind of stuffed the economy <laughs> with all these hidden risks and then you can just blame the next yeah. guy. Uh, so there's, I no, there's nobody's key, changed the oil for years. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> this key point, And, you know, we keep coming back to property being the crux mm-hmm. of the matter. Mm. And I think another way to think about, you know, property rights individually, like it is the mechanism of responsibility, 
Like mm. if you want someone to be responsible for something, give them a property interest in the thing, then they will have a, an incentive to take care of it over time to improve its capital value. And there's this great uh, quote. This is from Matilda Betham Edwards. She said, quote, give a man the secure possession of a bleak rock and watch him turn it into a garden. Give a man a nine-year lease on a garden and watch him convert it into a desert. The magic of property turns sand into gold, unquote. Mm. I love that quote. I think it just captures it so well. And I think of people like Peterson that talks so much about responsibility and how important it is in our lives individually. Mm. And property is the implementation of responsibility in a socioeconomic system. You can't have real responsibility without property. I mean, like to your point, you can try these other mechanisms of, oh, do it for your country or whatever mm-hmm. um, kind of amorphous semi-incentive mm-hmm. that might be. But to have give someone a direct financial incentive to secure and protect and preserve something is undoubtedly, I would say even inarguably the best way to, to make sure that asset has a long life, long and useful mm-hmm. life. Um, and that's the difference here, right? The monarch has a property interest. The democratic ruler does not. Yeah. And and that's what it comes down to is that a priori knowledge, which is that if, if somebody owes something, they're going to want, want to preserve it or improve it, or I, at least most of them will. I, there are very high time preference people. And this is kind of what Rome ran into is, you know, Tiberius was a huge saver, but his successor ended up like spending uh, all of the property that or all of the collected revenue and ended up having to raise taxes because he, he was just so profligate with his spending. Right. Um, and, and the, you know, it, it does happen, but at least with a monarch, we have a chance, right? Like, mm-hmm. but with a democracy, you have no chance whatsoever because mm. ultimately what, uh, what people end up doing is they, they just, uh, you know, like, spend as much and this is something that we can know a priori that Mm -hmm. uh that you can't really uh like impose new behaviors on a person and this is uh what we were talking about earlier uh is that there are certain incentives that people have and these are these can be treated as axioms of economic science but instead, what, what they do is they try to change the person to fit their economics, right? Like, mm. okay, we're, we're going to have this collective, um, you know, economy or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And we're going to change everyone's behavior by instilling them new civic virtues, right? Like, mm. uh, you're, you're going to go and recycle and clean up the highway and do whatever. Um, and to some degree, there there are people that are enough of a rule follower that they, they'll just go and do it, um, e- even uh, to feel good that they're supporting the government in some way. But the vast majority will not. And that's been shown over and over again in every sort of like socialist communist thing. And this is where it gets dicey, because typically when enough people sort of resist, you get you start getting into tyranny, you start getting Mm. into methods of violence and fear. And this is kind of what's happening right now, right? Like uh, they're they're trying to make it seem like vaccination is your civic responsibility, that it's your civic duty, that, uh, but it's not working on a lot of people. And at at some point, 
it's going to be, well, you're going to lose these services if you don't, uh, if you don't do it, or uh, you're going to get taxed more, or you're going to, you know, like there's going to be some threat or violence that's going to come upon you in order to get you to comply. And, uh, and th this is the flaw behind all of these um, sort of like uh, democratic socialist or some sort of like, um, uh, you know, essentially uh, socialist ideas of mm. changing human behavior to uh to conform to the good of the state rather than trying to you know protect the good of each individual in which case you get prosperity um you know they're they're trying to uh you know promote the the uh, the good of the state in which case you end up trampling on individuals and that causes this civilization which is what we're seeing Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we're back to that prioritizing the group over the individual. And it's all, you know, the crucible of all this, it always comes down to property, right? Even, mm -hmm. even when they're trying to instill these virtues, quote unquote, you know, like do your civic duty and get your vaccine or whatever, you know, I think a strong argument could be made that it's really trying to optimize the property of those that benefit from that vaccine, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, the vaccine producers or whatever um, industrial complex behind it. And it's all further, the way I think about this is it's almost like the state, you know, is a predator of property in a way. So this mm -hmm. idea of mandating vaccines Mm -hmm. You know, this, this, this spec, let's call it a specter right now. It's kind of a threat. I don't think it's really been completely done anywhere yet, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that would be the violation of your most personal property. It's like they're crossing the threshold of your skin and your body, right? Via government mm -hmm. mandate. And, you know, we know that government tries to encroach on your property step by step. So it seems like that step where they actually mandate you to take a vaccination would just be the most fatalistic step. And then from there, mm -hmm. they could just take it any direction. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, also, you know, in the sphere of war on property, the fiat currency inflation that's been rampant since COVID, that's all a violation mm -hmm. of private property. There's there, mm -hmm. you know, people really need to understand that, that when you hear printing money or, raising the debt ceiling, whatever, it all means the same thing. Like you're being robbed in broad daylight, full stop. Mm -hmm. There's there's nothing else mm -hmm. to it. Um, so one other thing I wanted to hit on monarchy, which you brought this up, I think is a very mm -hmm. important point before we move into uh, the shortcomings of democracy, was this clarity of class division, right? Like mm -hmm. in a monarchy, you know, relatively certainly, you're either part of the ruling class or part of the ruled class. Mm. And Hoppe makes a point that this promotes solidarity among the ruled. So it's like they know that they're being expropriated from, mm. but because they know that and there's clarity that they have, there's more group cohesion amongst them. Like if, if the ruler makes a misstep or does something they don't like, they have more power to keep him in check, you know, by, by mm -hmm. moving as a collective. And further to that, the ruler, there was a, there was more symmetry between the incentives and disincentives. So if the ruler wanted to say, go to war and expand his territory, 
he was expected to do that from his own balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Right. If you went out and tried to, and I, I know the line's not a bright line here, but if you tried to tax the population for the war or, or print currency mm-hmm. or whatever, they would resist, right? There'd be a resistance mm-hmm. because there was this clarity of class division. Whereas what we see in democracy, there's no such thing, right? It's like we just go to the printing press to finance, mm-hmm. at least in the US, this global imperialist effort. Um, so there seems to be this, this point of clarity and more clarity and certainty in a monarchy that promotes lower time preference versus the obscurity uh, that we see in democracy. Yeah, there, there's this illusion of consent that you have in democracy. I think that's what he calls it. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes it seem like if if the monarch, uh, if, if a democracy goes to war, that they have the consent of the governed. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas with a monarch, it's you know I'm going to do what I want, uh, but you know you're not obligated to like support me in that. Right? That that that's basically the monarch's uh, monarch's thing and. Conscription was rare and resisted heavily whenever that like came into being like, mm-hmm. like people would hate that because they knew like this, this was a form of tyranny. Whereas in a democracy, it's like, it's your civic duty to sign up for the army or something, <laughs> something to that effect. It, it's, um, you know, they, they have to utilize propaganda so much more because it is very unnatural, but there's also like some level of confusion about what you consented to and so on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that that's what gets exploited uh, for the benefit of those in power. And it, it really still is kind of a small class of people. It's just that they can do things without uh, necessarily having to pay the price for them that they would in a monarchy. Mm. So in a sense, I, I think the argument that Hop was making here is that monarchies allow uh, like a very clear uh, like draw much clearer boundaries uh, around whose is what's. Um, whereas like in a democracy, you have this weird thing called public property. And mm-hmm. this is where almost all the problems around uh, political discourse come, right? Because you have uh, even stupid stuff like littering. Uh, where mm-hmm. is it a, a, a problem? It's a problem on like public highways or public places. Mm-hmm. or pub- It's because... Well, like if a private property owner owned it, then they would say, okay, if you want to come on my property, don't litter. If you litter, I'm going to kick you out and you can't use it again. Um, But with public property, it's not at all clear. I mean, we we have like a a, a problem right now here in Austin where we have all these homeless people on public property, right? Like that wouldn't exist on private property. If you set up a tent next to my house or on my lawn, I'm going to get a gun and say, get off my lawn. Yeah. That is not allowed on pro- private property. The, the, the abomination of public property is what has caused all of these problems that happen politically. Mm-hmm. And this is what you get to avoid because you have clear boundaries around whose is what's. And uh, in a monarchy, public there is no public property. There's the monarch's property and there's your property. The monarch owns the property. He can do whatever he or he or she can do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. He or she wants to do with it. But if uh, you know, like if they want to host homeless people, be my guest, right? Like it's their <laughs> property. Um, 
but you know, like don't don't like force us to have homeless people on our property. That that would be expropriating our property. At which point we're gonna go go and resist. Uh, but with public property, it gets it gets to be this weird in between state that gets taken advantage of by the ruling elite to sort of uh, take it uh, like. I don't know, seize power or make it make things inconvenient or uh, do all sorts of power plays. I, I, I find it hilarious that every time that there's some sort of like uh, budget battle and then they don't have a deal, like the first thing that they shut down are national parks. Absolutely right. the first thing every <laughs> single time. And this is because this is one of the uh, clear things that the, that is public property and they want to shut it down so that everybody else feels the pain and not them. Right. Uh, they don't they don't shout, shut down the government bureaucrat that's working for the NSA or something like that. Right. Always shut down the freaking national parks. Pisses yeah. me off. Yeah. I mean, like and if they were more vicious, they would probably uh, shut down like the interstate highways. But they would never do that because they're beholden to corporations that depend on the trucking. <laughs> it's a beautiful rant. Um, the you know, we're back to this again, public property back to what Aristotle said, when everybody owns everything, nobody takes care of anything, right? We just get this tragedy, the commons, uh, you know, if property again is a mechanism of responsibility, then public property is kind of an oxymoron. It's just an abdication mm -hmm. of responsibility. Nobody's taking care of it. So it's just mm -hmm. the most, you know, littered, abused, uh, neglected property. If you even want to use that term, uh, there is. So, you know, and Rothbard makes great points about this too, that the the issue of pollution is largely because we don't have more private property. Like if you dumped mm. sewage in my river, I would sue your ass or stop you from doing it. <laughs> Versus if the river, you know, we don't really know who owns it and it's public property, then the corporation yeah. has an incentive to go and dump in this river that nobody's really, nobody has a financial incentive to preserve. Hmm. So it's just a breakdown of incentives, I think, across the board. Um, yeah, so it's a fuzzy boundary. And like nobody, nobody does well when you have a fuzzy boundary because it's not hmm. clear who's is who's. Yeah. Um, and th this is uh, this is this reminds me of how people tend to um, like even like going on Twitter or something like that. And they complain about being kicked off. And it's like mm -hmm. both sides have good points, right? Because. What do you own really when you have a Twitter account? Because like, do you, do you own your likeness? Do you own their database rows? Like what, what the hell do you own? Because it's not at all clear when you have centralized parties that sort of like, um, you know, like clearly Twitter, the corporation owns the databases or at least rents them out from AWS or something like that. Like it's not at all clear where the boundary is there, right? Like right. who owns what? Do you own your tweets or do you not own your tweets? Um, and if they if they own even a part of it, then ultimately that's what uh, results in them being able to ban you off their platform. And this is the and uh, like you said, this is the big problem. Like most problems, like if you had clear property boundaries, mm -hmm. like you wouldn't have. And this whole censorship debate yeah. is because of the fuzzy property boundaries that exist. And I think this is the main, this is like a bigger point that Hoppe makes later on. Democracy is antithetical to private property. 
Yes. Because as soon as you have a democracy, there is some level of claim to your property that they have. They make themselves sort of a trusted third party. So if you own a house, for example, well, you know, you don't really own it because they can tax you. And if you don't pay your taxes, they'll take it away. Mm-hmm. So really, you don't have full possession of your house. And mm-hmm. the, the, the boundary between what's yours and what's theirs is, is not at all clear because they have this right to tax. Um, and that, that, that's similar for almost everything in a democracy because of this ability to create new laws with the quote unquote consent of the governed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can be in the minority that gets screwed in that instance, in, in which case you're, um, you're a slave to the majority in a sense. And that's kind of the direction we seem to be going, but you know, I'll, I'll save that a little for later. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess even technically on Twitter, you're, I mean, you're the product, frankly, right. Uh-huh. To a centralized yeah. party. So you don't really have any property. Right. Um, but further to the point to really have, which I mean, even when I say freedom of speech, I think Rothbard too would argue here, that's a property rights issue. It's like, if you just have property rights, where are you doing it? Yeah. If if you're, if you're at my home, you're not allowed to say certain things or I'll kick you out. Yeah. But if you're on public property, it's like completely amorphous. Exactly. So if we just had, you know, uh, uncensorable media effectively Mm -hmm. in the digital age, Mm -hmm. that would give everyone sort of, uh, providence over their own data or property mm-hmm. right in their own whatever they're doing online um yeah I mean, I mean this is what i would call like running your own server right if you're hosting yeah. your own stuff yeah that's that that's your property right yeah. like, and if people want to subscribe to it and pull from it yeah that's fine you can you can go do it and um maybe i'll even charge a little bit of money for it uh mm-hmm. through lightning right like that that's that's like it, then you don't have any property rights issue there. And if mm-hmm. the government says, "Hey, I'm going to ban you from uh, being able to disseminate your lies," uh, well, I come at me, bro. Yeah. Like uh, yeah. you, you're going to seize my computer, <laughs> like yeah. like that. That would be a giant property rights violation. And I think uh, you know, like there would be enough people that would be like, "Oh, hey, you can't just seize this computer. Why? Right? Because you don't like what he said. That's that's definitely against." Uh, the founding principles of this country. And I, I, I would have trouble seeing, uh, you know, even a very liberal Supreme Court saying, well, that's okay. Um, but I mean, that, that, that's the idea is that right now we, are, we, we have to entrust some part of all of our property to the democracy. Like there, there is a public claim to your property in some yes, way in a yes. democracy, which is, like pernicious and evil and wrong. Uh, but you know, like we kind of tolerate because democracy is supposed to be good. Yeah. When you take that public claim on your property and you combine it with this tendency for governments to grow as Hoppe laid out Mm -hmm. earlier, it just becomes, Mm -hmm. it encroaches further and further on your property. And that's what we're going through right now. Right. The print, again, the printing Mm -hmm. of money, the mandate, mandate, Mm -hmm. mandatory vaccines, all of this. Um, so to sh- we'll shift a bit into the specific problems with democracy. The first obvious one we've kind of touched on already that public officials, they just have little to no skin in the game, right? They have these two to four, maybe eight year windows. Um, they effectively come into office. They inherit 
whatever problems from their predecessors. They have a short window to, um, in purely economic terms, to maximize their current income of their position. But they have no interest, again, because they have no property, right? They have no capital interest in the in the uh, productive economy at all, right? So they don't care if all the wheels come off. If they're a four-year guy, if all the wheels come off in year five, so be it. They have no skin in the game to that outcome. So they're incentivized to maximize current income, even at the expense of decapitalizing the economy. And they just don't face consequences of their actions, frankly. Mm. So there's no mm. symmetry of incentives and disincentives um, that maintains it. Mm. And, you know, it's just kind of this convincing illusion in a way, as, as Hoppe argues, uh, that we have self-rulership when in fact we're just mm. rotating in different rulers every so often that are maximizing their own interest at the long-term cost of everyone. Mm. Yeah. And th this is why the monetary policy has been just so loose over the last 50 years, right? Because each successor has no incentive to restrain spending. Um, and you know wh whether it's for war or it's for social programs or whatever, there's zero incentive to do that. They want to get theirs before they leave office. And whether it's for their party or for them personally or whatever, mm -hmm. um, generally like the, the crazy thing is that what they end up doing is spending billions, sometimes trillions of dollars so that they can have $30 million for the foundation that they establish afterwards, right? Like right. it's exactly a paltry sum compared yeah. to the, the, the amount, like, and they're okay with it because, it's you know, money. what's a trillion dollars yeah. that like I'm not paying uh, when I'm getting $30 million, uh, you know, afterwards. And this is, this is the prize that they're going for, which is like completely, insane that uh -huh. this is the trade-off that they're willing to make but they do it all the time and they do completely pointless and unproductive things like run wars uh and it, it, in order to get their you know however many millions afterwards uh it, it it seems like it would be much better if we could just bribe such people um like before they get into office just bribe them and say we'll give you 30 million dollars Go just away. don't do anything. <laughs> just don't do anything. Just stop doing anything. And that, 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 like, we'll just pay you $30 million. You know, that, yeah. that would be better. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. Um, yeah. Again, just broken incentives and it just really distorts the outcomes. Um, another point that Hoppe makes is that because the lines are blurred, right? That every, anyone mm -hmm. can come into office. So anyone can get into this position of benefiting from expropriation, let's say, mm. that it decrease, there's less clarity of, of the rulers and the ruled. So this actually mm -hmm. decreases the solidarity of the ruled because we, you don't mm -hmm. know really who's who. Um, and this actually lowers the resistance to expropriation. Because mm -hmm. so the government can just get away with more because there's no, mm -hmm. there's not, uh, again, there's not a bright line, right? You can't say you're mm -hmm. taking for me because it's, we're all kind of a mishmash in this one group. And this, so this kind of gets us into something else that's really problematic is it, it tends to increase the ratio as governments are spending more and more and more. We're increasing the ratio of government 
to private sector employees. Mm. And so, I mean, it's just more and more misallocation of capital. Um, mm -hmm. And I think back to like the USSR, which again, we have this common mm -hmm. outcome between democracy and, and straight communism, that towards the end of the USSR, I think the numbers were one in three people with a job were government informants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're just, <laughs> just ratting on one another, you know, like that, clearly uh -huh. that's a non-productive activity, but that made up, you know, a third of their, their uh, employment. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of do that when you have slave labor, um, which, yeah. which they had, right? And right. <laughs> like, it, it was so, it, it's so crazy, like learning about just how much they like leaned on that in order to make their economy run, because socialism just does not work in any yes. way. Um, and you you need slave labor in order to make that work. Um, but yeah, getting to your broader point, like there democracies do have this weird blurred line and that in turn uh, means that when you when government takes something away from you it's it's sort of like we're not taking it away from you per se mm -hmm. we're just sort of sharing it with everybody else yeah. um, you know you still own part of it right like that that that's sort of like the justification that they give although to any property owner they they know what's actually going on mm -hmm. when, whenever they get uh summon for uh you know like um what what's that thing uh if the government just takes your property eminent and domain you the, yeah if, if yeah. they if, if any victims of eminent domain will tell you straight up okay yeah that that was theft <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but but the, this is the pernicious thing about democracies is that they can say that everyone owns it as a, a justification for taking your stuff away and right. it seems more legitimate because well the greater good has need of your stuff mm -hmm. and then they take your stuff um and you know i mean not to say that monarchs didn't do the same thing um mm -hmm. but it was much less tolerated because it was seen as the monarch's war or the monarch's uh expenses or something like that mm -hmm. if uh you know if the monarch took your horse because he has need of it like you'd be like why be like you're really you're already really rich and you can afford it why, why are you just taking it away from me mm -hmm. um but you know when the government does it it's it, it seems le more legitimate somehow despite the fact that you know um they they have all kinds of resources and all kinds of land and all kinds of stuff that they supposedly own that could potentially be sold or uh, used to raise revenue, but they don't ever do it. Why? Because they have the printing press and they can steal from everybody at any time by just printing more of it. Um, it it's it, it's this, uh, and, and that's ultimately like the biggest expression of quote unquote public property mm -hmm. is the money. Yeah. Um, because, you know, they, they say, well, well, we'll just print more of it. Government has need of your uh your savings uh and will use it for the common good mm -hmm. um it, it really is this common good fallacy uh that that's inherent in quote unquote public property that yeah. that confuses absolutely everything there like what's the common good it's it's it uh you know i mean i've, I've been reading some aquinas lately and i think even his view of the common good is fairly confused um and it, it doesn't really make sense 
because uh, it's hard to measure things collectively. And it yeah. does kind of uh, like get into sort of like empiricist camps because it's, it's how do you measure the common good? How right. do you even know that it's, it's ultimately better for most people uh, when like everything, all value is subjective and there's no real measurable way to figure that out. So they yeah. just sort of take it as an article of faith that you can do that and that it will benefit people in some way in the future. Yeah, it's it's a great point. I'm the common good it seems to me to be this kind of moralistic camouflage, not mm-hmm. unlike the communistic thing, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a lie, frankly, you know, mm-hmm. it's a it's an excuse mm-hmm. or a scapegoat to get away with whatever they want. Um I guess the other point here is that yeah, the to try and measure that outcome, right? The greater good or the common good, very difficult amorphous to do, but we know a priori that a free market premise on purely voluntary exchange would optimize for the want satisfaction of the most people. Mm-hmm. Like by definition, mm-hmm. that's what it does. <laughs> so it's so simple almost, you know, like just, mm-hmm instill liberty and let things be, you know, don't violate the property of others. And then we create mm-hmm. the best outcomes as a result, but human mm-hmm. beings, you know, just our sinful nature, we have just not been able to just do that. We just mm-hmm. keep crossing that line um, across one another's property. And the other point, I think that, you know, and Hayek makes this point a lot too, that because there is a way for people to, get on the other side of this nozzle where they can benefit from the expropriation. This is attracting people with high time preferences, thirst for power, limited farsightedness. Mm -hmm. It's actually a magnet for like the worst people in society. (laughs) And so you end up with democracy ends up with this, you know, top heavy ruling class of the worst people. Like Mm. it's scary to think about, but I would, you know, I think we're seeing the consequences of it now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it it really does sort of like have terrible incentives. And, um, you know, at least at the beginning in the United States, uh, you know, like there, there were a lot of people that were that that saw um, like being president as a burden, right? Like mm-hmm. Washington was like, oh, I like I he really wanted to quit after the first term, but everybody wrote him and said, "Your country really needs you. Please go for another four years." <laughs> and he's like, "All right, fine." And then he he's like, "I'm not doing it. I, I'm not doing this anymore." Right? Like that 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 was his attitude, and um, and you know the, these were virtuous men, right? Like they they really wanted what was best for um the rest of the country and like they they tried very hard uh to restrict themselves um and you know i'd like to think that's the case of uh you know more leaders today but you know all the evidence is that they're definitely not or either that or they're just you know they're not the ones in charge right like the Mm -hmm. the people in charge are what we would now call the deep state. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, its own creature at this point where they, they've, um, they, they seek to, you know, keep growing, uh, as a parasite on society and whatever the figurehead might be, they 
kind of do their own thing um, and you know they, it's it's it grows fat on uh on fiat money uh which allows them to uh a direct access to the economy to suck blood from um mm -hmm. and that's that's the unfortunate reality of what's going on today in a democracy um but i would say that like democracy i i think isn't quite as potent or as um pernicious or evil or morally hazardous as it would be without fiat money uh, right. it is fiat money that really supercharges mm -hmm. uh all of the worst aspects of a democracy um, and this is where I disagree with Hapa a little bit. I, I think there are redeeming aspects to democracy versus a monarchy in the ability of uh, 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 of uh, you know like transitions of power and so on mm -hmm. tend to be much more peaceful in a democracy, mm -hmm. whereas in a monarchy, you have like three sons, then you have three right, factions, right. You have like this terrible times of transition and things like that. Uh, so you know, like that. I, I think there are good aspects of a democracy. It's just that, you know, combined with fiat money, it just it just supercharges its evil um, to a degree that, you know, it, it really is kind of this civilizing much more so than maybe a monarchy would be. Yeah, agreed. Um, I think another, I mean, we could finish with this for today. The the incentives that it creates for a democratic ruler to basically just borrow and mm. and you know accumulate debt on mm. on the behalf of the productive economy or on the public balance sheet if you will um is enormous and we know that you know and they're basically passing that buck along again to the to someone else mm. So the next democratic ruler that is equally non-liable for the debt. So they're mm -hmm. incentivized to accrue all these benefits to themselves and defer the cost. And clearly rising government indebtedness, a huge problem today. The United States, one of the worst in the world. Um, we know that this fragilizes economies. It raises time preferences, as Hoppe argues. Uh, and I'd like to just read this one other excerpt. I think captures it well. He says, quote, while a king is by no means opposed to debt, he is constrained in this natural inclination by the fact that as the government's private owner, he and his heirs are considered personally liable for the payment of all government debts. He can literally go bankrupt or be forced by creditors to liquidate government assets. In distinct contrast, a presidential government caretaker is not held liable for debts incurred during his tenure of office. Rather, his debts are considered public to be repaid by future equally non-liable governments. And he goes on to say, quote, and with the expectation of a higher future tax burden, the non-government public also becomes affected by the incubus of rising time preference degrees. For with higher future tax rates, present consumption and short-term investment are rendered relatively more attractive as compared to saving and long-term investment, unquote. So there's just an incentive to accumulate more indebtedness, which raises time preferences and destroys civilization. Like this is, it's an, an a priori mm -hmm. explanation of what we are living through today. And it just blows my mind.
Yeah, I mean, and if you thought that public property was an abomination, public liability is even worse of an abomination mm-hmm. because literally nobody cares, right? Uh, yeah. But there is debt that needs to be paid. Um, and the, the, this is where it gets really uh, pernicious because like to take it back to the car analogy, right? The monarch is the one that owns a car and the president is one who has access to a car. Well, each president successively takes out like loans against the car so they can go mm-hmm. buy what right, they want, right? right. Like, yeah. this, this is, this is what, what, what's been happening in the U.S. over and over again. And this happens in every democracy with uh, fiat money is that you have this spigot of, uh, uh, of new money that comes in the form of loans, but it's really money printing and, you know, public liability continues to grow. So really like, um, I, I don't know what the assets, like if you did an accounting of the federal government balance sheet, right? Like you, you have certain assets like public land and things like that mm-hmm. versus the public liability. I actually wonder if it would be largely negative. Um, I, I imagine it would be for a lot of countries, um, certainly for the U.S., it would be f- pretty close because the federal government owns a freaking ton of land, at least in yeah. the U.S. Um, but like, I I wouldn't be surprised if it was negative. Like at some point, yeah, I, I think all the real estate in the U.S. is uh, is something like thirty trillion. I think we're pretty close to that with the federal deficit. Yeah, and I imagine that it has to be only a portion of that for real estate and so on. So. I, I don't know, like that, that, um, that ability to like incur debt means that like really public property is of negative net worth because mm-hmm. of the public liabilities, uh, which, which is the territory we're getting into. And that's probably towards the end of, uh, of its existence if, if that's what continues to happen. Yeah, and to your earlier point, fiat supercharges this dynamic right Mm. like we especially as um global reserve currency we have even more incentive to take on even more debt because we can always just print our way out of it so there's just we've kind of just getting this double whammy of democracy and fiat currency driving us deep into indebtedness and Basically, that is a destructive force of civilization. I mean, what? Do, yeah, I yeah at least monarchs had to be solvent. Uh, a yeah. democracy does right. not, and that's exactly. the big restriction. I forget. Uh, was it? I forget who said it, but he said there's two ways to enslave a country. One is by the sword. The other is by debt. You know. So, mm. um, such a such. I guess putting these two things together, democracy and fiat currency, they're like two forms of self-deception at scale, Mm. you know, and Mm -hmm. and it leads to these self-destructive behaviors. Mm. Um, Yeah. And it just, it is so, (laughs) I hope that by talking about it, we're at least equipping people with more knowledge about what's going on in the world so that we can rectify this in the years ahead, because it's very disheartening to look at it. Uh, where it stands today. Mm. Yeah, I, I personally hope for a smaller city states uh, where we try different forms of government that might be more appropriate to the local population and stuff like that and see what works, see what doesn't. And 
you know, a priori, there are certain things that you can predict about certain ones. So like if you have a socialist city state, it's probably not going to work. And a lot of people are going to just leave as soon as it gets uh, tyrannical. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, like there are other things that we could uh, find out empirically like that work for certain regions and at certain times and so on. So I'm hoping that's the direction we go in. But unfortunately, we're in a fiat based economy where like, you know, control over territory matters as far as, uh, you know, um, being able to tax them stealthily. Uh, And, you know, there is this natural inclination for uh, governments not to grow themselves, but to grow their own territory so they can tax Mm. more people. Uh, One thing I remember reading that I was like, oh, that's not exactly true because of fiat money was, you know, uh, Hapa says that, you know, uh, like they have to rate, have war in order to rate, get more territory so they can tax more people. Mm. Um, uh, but I was like, actually, the U.S. doesn't do that. They tax more people just with the monetary con- uh, conquests mm. uh, and having the world on a dollar standard means that they can tax everybody in the world. So um, I thought that was a pretty interesting point. Yeah, that is very interesting point.